So, settle down. It may sound like an ordinary night at the theatre, but this is the story of how costume and textiles played a central role in one of the great artistic and cultural upheavals of modern times. It was a revolution that attracted artistic giants such as Picasso, Matisse and Stravinsky. But as ever, the skilled textile hands at the heart of this story have been largely forgotten until now. It's a summer evening in Paris, June 1910. We're at the Opera House in the 9th arrondissement, waiting for the curtain to go up on a feast of costume, music and dance. The evening we're about to enjoy will change the world of art and culture, ushering in the 20th century and saying goodbye to the 19th. It will mark the debut of a remarkable new era of ballet with fresh music, dance and magically innovative costumes. After this, it will be acceptable the dance itself to command our attention for an entire evening and trace us a story in steps, music, and of course, extraordinary textiles, rather than being part of a mixed bill of entertainment. This is the premiere of The Firebird, with Stravinsky's wonderful music and Mikhail Fokin's choreography. But for the audience, the costumes designed by Alexander Golovin and Leon Baxt and the beautiful painted backdrops reflecting the Russian origins of this folktale would also have been astonishing. Everything about this evening was new. One Paris critic wrote that it was the most exquisite marvel of equilibrium that we have ever imagined between sounds, movements and forms, a danced symphony. This was the brilliance of the Ballet Russe, brought together by the Russian impresario Serge Diaghilev. The scores commissioned by Diaghilev shaped 20th century music. The costumes changed fashion and more importantly, were transferred from the stage to the street. They altered what people wore and how they decorated their homes. Certainly the influence of the Ballet Russe is inestimable. I don't think there is another performance organization that has quite such a wide impact through the rest of the 20th century and onwards. It's still actually there, which is quite extraordinary. And I think it was the fact that it really was sort of revitalising. Ballet had become pretty moribund by the turn of the 19th into the 20th century. It was very formulaic. And then suddenly there is this explosion of superb dancing, of interesting music, challenging music, 
of a wide range of designs that hadn't been seen before. Jane Pritchard is the curator of dance at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. She knows that ballet is the most fugitive of the performance arts. If you weren't there in that theatre for that performance with those lights and costumes, the dancers, the smell of the makeup and the music, it's hard to describe the magic. And more than a hundred years later, no one is left who was there. But what does remain from all the wonderful performances given by legendary figures like Nijinsky, Massine, Markova, Fokin, Lifar, what does remain is the music and, amazingly, the costumes. They're extraordinary and they survive only by chance, a simple twist of fate. These aren't run-of-the-mill tutus and tights, but works of art designed by people like Matisse, Picasso, Coco Chanel and others. And this episode of Haptic and Hue is about Serge Diaghilev's Ballet Russe, its costumes and what they tell us about the age in which they were made. Welcome to Haptic and Hughes Tales of Textiles. My name is Jo Andrews and I'm a hand weaver, interested in what cloth tells us about ourselves and our societies. Often the stories and information that textiles can give us are ignored and we lose a whole dimension of human experience. This podcast is about trying to restore that. Jane at the V&A says the creation of the Ballet Russe wasn't really what Diaghilev had in mind at all. The Ballet Russe, in a way, came into existence by accident, which will sound sort of a strange comment to make. But essentially, when one looks at what was happening in the late 19th century in terms of dance, I think it had become fairly stereotyped. Russia was one place I think had very good training for dancers, it also devoted a lot of money, so the imperial purse put money in, and it was one of the few places where you would have evenings just dance, just ballet, and you had some very long ballets. And those works like Swan Lake, Nutcracker, are the works that people know now. And so there is the assumption that in the 19th century, everywhere was performing these sort of long ballets. They weren't. By and large, if you were going to see ballet, it would be alongside opera. So in Russia, there was an excellent and arduous system of training for dancers, backed by the imperial court, and a repertoire of familiar and much-loved 19th-century ballets. But America had no ballet to speak of at all, and in much of Western Europe, ballet wasn't an art in its own right. It was entertainment, music hall, light relief. There are a few exceptions, but they are exceptions. So ballet did not have an independent existence in many countries, but it was popular. There was no doubt about it. A lot of it was performed in musicals, in popular theatre. But it was, I think, fairly formulaic in the way it worked. And if the ballets were formulaic, then so were the costumes. You would have been looking at a hierarchical company with your ballerina, who would wear a tutu, definitely. And it was a status symbol. 
there are actually court cases whereby a ballerina is given a costume that is not a tutu, and so she takes the management to court. This is not what a ballerina should wear. So you have a tutu that through the 19th century has got shorter as technique has changed, so showing off the dancer's legs. The costumes would reflect fashion to a certain extent. Actually, quite a lot of the tutus have a sort of bustle effect at the back. It's only fairly small, but if you look at the profile, it's there. So I think you can see it related to what was expected in society. A lot of the corps de ballet would be in probably more elaborate dresses because they wouldn't be expected to move a great deal. And they would very often have a prop in their hand, something that sort of told you who they were. And there was a lovely instance where there was an interview with Ninette de Valois, who sort of said, well, of course, everyone had something in their hands, so they never learned to use their upper body very much. Enter Serge Diaghilev, a man who was the very definition of an impresario. He loved opera and art, and he thought he could make money and his reputation by taking Russian artists to Paris. In 1908, his summer opera tour was well received, but he lost money on it. In 1909, he decided to repeat the experiment, but to mix opera with some ballet, because, and this astonished me, the ballet dancers were cheaper to take than the opera stars. And so the Ballet Russe appeared for the first time in Paris as part of a mixed programme. In 1910, Diaghilev returned with a new ballet, The Firebird, set to music by Stravinsky with his star dancer, Nijinsky, and the ballet russe was born properly. From then on, Diaghilev set about creating a company with Nijinsky and Fokin, his choreographer, Stravinsky, his composer, Baxt, his costume and set designer, and the Russian dancers. In 1911, it became a year-round operation based in Paris, but touring London, Brussels, Berlin. As with everything else, the Ballet Russe's approach to costume was different. They created designs like tunics that allowed the dancers to use their whole bodies and not just parts of them. They used different techniques, applique, embroidery, beading, painting, stenciling, screen printing and dyeing to create bold shapes and intense colours. The Ballet Russe's costumes began to influence fashion and interior design as the ballet themes fed through into popular imagination. Here's Dr Caroline Hamilton, a costume and dance historian, who's also the daughter and granddaughter of ballet dancers. So at the beginning of that, it's still very much Edwardian clothing, just moving into the teens and then obviously into the 20s. But I think this just explosion of colour must have just been quite revolutionary. And you can definitely see the impact directly in fashion of the early teens when you get this particularly French designers with things sort of like the lampshade tunics with this kind of essence towards turbans, harem style pants, all that kind of look towards the East. I would say that is probably directly influenced by the Ballet Russe. 
also in design, interior design as well. But I think it was, yeah, the use of color, the freedom. So the fact that they were suddenly wearing costumes more reflective of the characters, they weren't wearing point shoes, they would be wearing bare feet shoes, you know, I think that was quite revolutionary too. Jane Pritchard says that for the first season, the costume makers scoured street stalls for the production of Prince Igor. They went to the markets, in, apparently in St Petersburg, and acquired the Ikat fabric, which was so wonderfully colourful. I mean, gosh, that would pick up the light beautifully. And so you actually had these very, very colourful productions. So that was probably one of the most original at that point, that first season. If we look at the other works, there was Cleopatra. And so that also had tunics. It liberated the body in terms of the style of the costume. season when they bought Scheherazade, the Arab folk tale of the girl who tells the Sultan tales for a thousand and one nights that really began to influence fashion and design. And that simply captures the popular imagination. Again, I think we have a sort of symbiosis of what's happening in fashion. So within fashion, you're really getting the sort of slightly simpler dress, sort of late first decade. And here you get sort of the harem pants and wonderful decoration sort of coming through. So basically there is, again, costumes that liberate the body, costumes of a quality that capture the popular imagination. I mean, it was a whole production, the setting and the sort of the harem and everything. Now, it's not to say that some of the other earlier productions hadn't used some of these devices, but not to the same extent and not, I think, with the same use of colour. And remember, the sheer numbers of dancers on the stage would have made a tremendous impact. I would love to have explored the V&A's collection of Belarus costumes, but at the moment, except for a couple on display in the theatre and performance gallery, all are packed away, waiting for the opening of the museum's new archive centre next year. That meant we had to go elsewhere to see these survivors. Luckily, London's University of the Arts holds around 40 items from the ballets, some of them dating from the earliest years. And Jacqueline Winston Silk, who cares for them, got out a number of them for us to look at. Well... I mean, the garments are beautiful and you've got a mix of workmanship. So a lot of them look like they're screen printed. You've obviously got some lacing, you've got some velvet. I mean, we do know that the Ballet Russe were working with the time's most influential people, um, certainly in terms of designers, choreographers, musicians. And I assume that would extend to the people who are actually making the garments as well. Certainly, they've stood the test of time and they've certainly been extremely well-worn. A lot of them have got staining on the inside, so it's nice to have that more forensic look at the garments. Things have been sweated in. 
there's makeup on them. You know, things have been damaged, things have been repaired. So the fact that they've been repaired and reworn does suggest that a lot went into them in the first place. Because why would you go to the effort of remaking something which you could make again? Above all, these costumes were work clothes. Sarah Woodcock, who writes about ballet wardrobe, says they were redolent of the disreputable, ephemeral, hurly-burly of theatre. Costumes reek of life and perspiration, of the nightly stress of performance when they were thrown on and ripped off, struggled into by other bodies than those for which they were made, then packed into skips still soaked with sweat. They bear honourable scars, hasty repairs, alongside more careful darns and patching. Alterations for different dancers, the rotted fabric under arms and around belted waists, makeup ingrained into the necks. And for me, one piece in this collection seems to sum up everything that was brilliant about the Ballet Russe, and it too bears its share of honourable scars. Let's just lift the garment out. It's actually quite heavy, heavily embroidered. The fabric is heavy. It must have been hard to dance in. So this tunic, it's almost oversized, isn't it? There's this kind of outsized, oversized tunic, very heavily embroidered and not, not screen printed this time, but almost using applique almost. So what we've got is sort of, it's difficult to tell what color it would have been, but I guess a sort of brown or beige mm. background and then appliqued onto that. Yeah, these kind of roses or sort of rosettes, floral motifs. Again, this beautiful bright pink mm. and then a rather lovely violet offsetting smaller pieces. And then it almost looks like frogging, but it isn't really. It's the most fantastic. Um, stitching mm. in really wonderful designs. I can't imagine anything more different than a sort of classical 19th century ballerina's tutu. Well, no, I mean, that, it's so far removed, isn't it? But that, I suppose that in itself is, is the whole notion of the Ballet Russe. They were creating original performances. They weren't necessarily rehashing existing ballet stories. They were producing performances that were unlike really, any ballet that had come before them. And I think that legacy plays out even now. And even this has got this lovely, I don't know what you'd call this, this almost additional kind of piece of material that, no, it's almost just adding in material for the sake of movement, I think. Down, and it's right down the side. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a flap of material. It is, it's like a flank, isn't it, almost? That runs from under the arms all the right way down to the hem. To the hem. And, this would have come, what, just uh, onto the thighs of the dancer? Yeah, I think if my memory serves me correctly, I think in the image, the dancer is a, it's a male dancer, and then underneath, he's just wearing tights. So a sort of long, long-ish tunic that would have gone, I suppose, below, or sort of halfway down the thigh, potentially. But again, here, lots of signs of repair here. So you've got... Well, there's a very large repair in what would have been, I suppose, the armpit of, of this garment. And it almost looks as if, if we compare it to the other side. Oh no, there is, it's almost the same on the other side. But you can see there's, 
this, I suppose, webbing that's been applied on the top and that's completely threadbare. And you can see traces of repair in that green thread. It's almost quite difficult to distinguish repair from design in some of the places. You can see here, there's a tear in the actual fabric and that's been worked and repaired. Look on the other side. You can see the areas that would have been under the most stress here on the back of the shoulder, you've got this repair. So you can see they're real working garments. And the repairs in a sense are quite minimal, aren't they? It's just to allow you to get up and perform again. Yeah, they're quite quick. You've just got these very basic stitches. I think they're just perhaps at the side of the stage, a seamstress, you know, fixing the garments ready to go back on stage. It doesn't look like a great amount of care has been taken with the repairs. And again, this is uh, fantastically heavy, isn't it? This is very heavy. I mean, not all of them are heavy, but I suppose if you're only dancing in this and a pair of tights, that's not too bad. <laughs> Maybe the slightly more restrictive garments might be more difficult. It is heavy, but I think that just comes down to the level of detail that you've got onto it that's been applied. You must have got quite hot in it though, I think. Yeah, the makeup, the sweat, absolutely. You've got, I mean, there's, there's staining all over the place, but I think it, it adds to it. It's, it's the kind of excitement of being on the stage, isn't it? Who knows what these garments have been through? And the knowledge of what these garments have been through has a profound impact on the way in which Jacqueline approaches her work in caring for the costumes. Yes, you see these stains and repairs and you might perhaps think initially they make the garment look unsightly, but on the contrary, I think these marks, this kind of patina builds up the object's story. So if we were to remove that, you would be removing the history, the essence, the significance of the object. And I think embracing these marks or holes, rips, stains, whatever they may be, if they're contemporary with the object, and I think that, it's, that enriches our understanding absolutely of what the object is, and to remove them would just completely change the object. And I don't think you'd ever actually be able to remove them. I think if you were to try and clean something like this, you'd be setting yourself up for a failure. <laughs> <laughs> Diaghilev, being Diaghilev, wanted the best in terms of designers for his productions and his costumes. He believed in perfection. Each dancer was checked before going on stage and fined for any changes to the costume and makeup or for wearing unsuitable jewellery. And perfection extended to his designers. In Paris, he persuaded Jean Cocteau to work for him, then Picasso and André Derain. And after the First World War, he invited Henri Matisse to design the set and costumes for the ballet called Le Chant de Rossignol. With the Matisse, we believe with the costumes that Matisse probably did the painting on them. So they really are the work of the artist. It's interesting because different designers, artist designers, some of them are much more interested in the set, which one can understand, which I think probably was the case with Picasso. So that, that you know, you can sort of see he was hands-on painting the set. He wasn't, as far as we know, hands-on in the... Deran was everywhere. He was very involved with everything, so he would have kept an eye on what was happening with um, the costumes being made, I'm sure. Matisse became far more interested in the costumes than in the set. And he went to the atelier and was there. Sort of, and the brush strokes are so loose on the 
decoration that it's not like someone's got a stencil to do it. You can see they've basically been painted on. So it is believed that he probably painted at least some of the costumes himself. So handling them is, I mean, it's quite amazing, actually. Stage costumes are not couture. They do look tawdry and tattered close up. It's how they move when there's a dancer inside them and what they look like under lights that matters. Making ballet and theatre costumes is a very different skill from dressmaking. This is not about the long term. Instead, makers work towards the opening night and the hope that the run will be a success. Costumiers need to be able to translate a drawing into a finished garment. To understand how to make a design work at a distance and to construct them so that they are resilient enough to survive the dance itself and the process of touring. And this brings me to a question, one that I think is vital. We've heard an array of famous names in this episode. The Ballet Russe played a part in helping these people build their reputations. But in most cases, their hands were not those that actually made these costumes. The dancers were famous, the designers were famous, even the costumes are now famous. But who were the makers? Here's Caroline Hamilton, who among many other talents has been a dresser at Sadler's Wells in London and a costume maker for the National Ballet of Canada. That's sort of what kind of took me down the rabbit hole of really looking at the construction of these costumes is because the makers often aren't recorded. And that is something that um, a lot of research is going into now. The Victorian Albert Museum have been really good about trying to find out who actually made these pieces, the same with the National Gallery of Australia. But we still don't know who made all of these costumes. We know who designed them. And I think that's a key difference here is costumes had not been designed like this before. They were employing artists, not theatrical designers. So they were coming up with these incredible, fantastical designs. If you've ever looked at one of Bach's designs for the early ballets, they're beautiful pieces of art. Now, how do you turn that into a costume? And I think that's where the real skill is, because that's where these often women were turning that drawing, that beautiful rendering into an actual garment that could be danced in, but also still had all the elements of the design. And it was also their responsibility to design the back because nearly always the designers only drew the front. So I think that's such an interesting sort of dialogue there. The Ballet Russe didn't have a wardrobe department. It wasn't that kind of a company. It was a ballet in exile, and essentially, it was always on tour. They travelled with, you know, sort of a maintenance. So people that would look after the costumes, dresses, and a head of wardrobe in that respect, but they didn't have a costume shop. A lot of the costumes were made in Paris, a lot in London, and just wherever they were. And in some cases, you know, a varying skill. So you get something like the Sleeping Beauty, which was a huge ballet, and there was multiple makers. I think there's at least five different makers. And sometimes you get a set of couples costumes, for instance, and the 
women's costume was made by one maker and the men's costume was made by another. And although they go together and they look very beautiful from a distance up close, you can see that the female's costume in this example is beautifully made. And the other costume, the men's costume is really rough and you know bits are just painted on because they didn't have time to make all the detail. And I love that because that just gives so much more information. And it also gives you information that isn't available from any other source. Caroline says the ballet did build relationships with certain makers at different periods. So one of the most prominent makers was Madame Mouel, um, Marie Mouel, and she was a opera costumier in Paris. She had her own atelier and she made nearly all the costumes for Bach's ballets. They seem to have formed this kind of relationship around 19... 1911-1912 and from then on she and her workshop made all his ballets and made quite a lot of the costumes for Sleeping Princess as well. They just seem to have had a really good relationship and she could make his designs you know a reality in a way that he was happy with and Diaghilev was happy with. In the first few years of the Ballet Russe the costumes a lot of them were still being made in Russia and being brought out and then as they were uh, permanently based in Europe more were made in Paris, in London, etc. Um, they used companies like Morris Angel, which we, uh, we know now as Angels, the uh, the big costume workshop and warehouse, which is still going today. They provided some costumes when the company was there in the late teens. And sometimes, you know, they would lose costumes, they would need additions made, or, you know, designers would change the style of the principal costume, for instance, and things would need to be altered quite quickly. And she says she can tell by looking at the stitching and the way in which a garment is constructed, what period it comes from. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's still definitely a little bit of sort of, you know, guesswork, but I'd say particularly someone like uh, Madame Mouel's work is quite distinctive. The attention to detail is just incredible. A lot of really, really precise applique beautiful use of color and really, you know, no expense spared in the fabrics, in the trim, also in the detail when you think a lot of this is all being hand done at this time. And later on you get, you see use of embroidery machines and things like that, but early on it is not. Um, and that is just really quite amazing. And then yes, you get costumes that are much more roughly made and then you can sort of hazard a guess about when based on some of the other pieces as well. At the V&A, they hold a number of costume receipts, so they can follow the trail of costume makers round Europe, even if the actual hands, the petits mains as the French call them, often remain unknown. But they do know that Stravinsky's wife Vera made some of them, and also that Coco Chanel began to design for the ballet. Here's Jane. So Chanel, for example, is very involved with the company in the 1920s. Uh, she begins actually as a sponsor, putting money into the company, actually for the revival of the Rite of Spring. So when Massine does the second staging of it, she's apparently behind that, obviously very involved with Stravinsky at the time. But then she becomes an advisor to Diaghilev about the costumes and things like that, and goes on and actually designs and the atelier is behind the making of the costumes for the Trambler 
the blue train, which is a ballet about sport. So you've got the tennis player, you've got the bathers, you know, it's, it's, it's that, the golf player. The golf player is sort of based around uh, the appearance of the Prince of Wales. The tennis player is inspired by Suzanne Langlan, who was a great tennis player at the time. Part of Caroline's job is to assess where and when a costume might have been made, acting as a kind of textile detective. And one of the first things she does is to look inside a costume. That's where the information is. When you look inside some of these ballet russe pieces, you know, there's lists of literally names inside, you know, of all the different dancers that would have worn it. Because for dance ballet, you know, a new costume isn't made for every cast. Every time the ballet is revived, it's the same costumes. And that still is what happens with ballet companies today. You know, it's very expensive to make these costumes. So they will be worn for 20 years, sometimes even 30 years um, by successive waves of dancers, and they will be altered to fit them. But if you've ever been sort of close to the stage of more of a sort of tutu ballet, for instance, Swan Lake, Sleeping Beauty, something like that, and if you catch a glimpse of the back of the costumes, you might notice multiple rows of hooks and bars. And that is so, because the next night, that tutu might need to be on a different dancer and needs to fit that dancer as well. So yes, when you're in the audience and you're looking at them, they still look wonderful under the lights with that distance and up close, you know, they can look super scruffy, but that is part of the history and part of their life as a working object. And this is what gives these costumes their power and emotional force. They may not look pristine, but they hold the memory within their threads of skill and artistic endeavor. They whisper of opening nights, stage fright, and tumultuous applause. They're scented with exertion and curtain calls. Tiagalev died in 1929, but his companies lived on in various forms for many years and finally collapsed in the 1950s. The costumes went into storage outside Paris and were forgotten until the 1960s, when interest in the ballets was revived. In the late 60s and early 70s, three grand auctions of the sets and costumes were held in London. Many of them eventually came to the V&A, the Museum of Dance in Stockholm also successfully bid for a number of the costumes. And famously, at the last auction, nearly a quarter of the items went to 11-year-old Andrew Strauss, guided by his father, who was bidding on behalf of the newly established National Gallery of Australia. And now, a hundred years later, it is the costumes more than anything else that have become the stars of the show in their own right, taking us both back to the past, but also acting as inspiration to future generations of dancers and designers, reminding us of the need for renewal and innovation in all artistic forms. Thank you for listening to this episode of Haptic and Hue.
I owe a great deal of thanks to Jane Pritchard of the Victoria and Albert Museum. To the costume and dance historian, Dr. Caroline Hamilton, and to Jacqueline Winston-Silk of the University of the Arts. If you'd like to see pictures of some of the costumes or read a full script of this podcast, you can find them all on Haptic and Hugh's website at www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash listen. Haptic and Hugh is hosted by me, Joe Andrews, and produced and edited by Bill Taylor. It's an independent production supported entirely by its listeners who bring us ideas and generously fund this podcast via Buy Me a Coffee or by becoming a member of Friends of Haptic and Hugh, which costs £50 a year or £5 a month. This keeps the podcast truly independent and free from sponsorship and advertising and brings you extra content every month. If you'd like to find out more, it's on the website at www.hapticandhugh.com forward slash friends. To end this time, I want to remember all the unknown and largely female hands that worked on these costumes, that translated the designs of all the artists into practical costumes that could be danced in and looked wonderful under the lights, and who sat night after night at the side of the stage and repaired and darned so that the show could go on. To remember them, here's an unusual extract from Rimsky-Korsakov's ballet, Scheherazade, played on the guitar.